Um, welcome, everybody, uh, to tonight's discussion. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of, of the land on which we are gathered tonight, the Wurundjeri people, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. My name is Callum Morton. I'm head of fine art at, uh, at MARTA, Monash Art Design and Architecture. Um, and I'm emceeing tonight's panel with... Diego Ramirez Lovering, and I'm head of architecture at Monash. Your mic's not on. I think it's it, on. It is. It's just quiet. Okay. <laughs> okay. <coughs> okay. So what we thought we'd do is start with a little bit of framing um, about the, the topic for tonight. Um, and then we'll ask some questions. Um, there will be uh, some questions. We'll take questions from the floor as well. So it's, uh, as I understand, uh, the session is being recorded. So we'll pass the mic for recording purposes. Yes, yeah, so the mic is right here. So if you want to ask a question, we can pass it, but maybe you could just come right here and ask, ask a question. Okay. okay, so tonight's event is titled Procurement of Public Art and Architecture in Melbourne. Many artists have asked me what actually is this procurement yeah, I don't, word. Artists don't use the word procurement. It's a big, <laughs> big hot topic in architecture. We would probably use the word commissioning. Commission, yes, that's okay. right. It's used more in architecture. So at MARA, Monash Art Design and Architecture, we have been having an ongoing discussion about the future of our city and our role as educators of art and architecture in this future. In particular, we have been examining and questioning traditional art and architecture education models that seem to somehow no longer capture or best serve the changes in the context of our contemporary urban environments. So sheer design or artistic talent is one of only many ingredients in achieving good outcomes and on its own is of course not able to deliver these good outcomes. So a good outcome in the built environment has to be supported by a progressive political agenda, discerning clients, a good financial and management model, good developers, uh, good builders of course, and consultant teams. So in response, we've been conceptualizing uh, uh, a new type of education model, what we term the new urban professional, that is more concerned, I guess, with uh, and interested in the workings and the mechanisms of what ultimately makes good architecture and public art. A deeper understanding of the political, economic, and social context would allow our current students and future practitioners to become more effective in the transformation of and contribution to these urban landscapes. So tonight's discussion surrounds these contexts. So I think no one here would disagree that great architecture and great public art form an essential ingredient in the making of great cities. What is much more contested territory, however, is the way in which we value, instigate, and ultimately procure great, or uh, commission, uh, great and innovative architecture and public art. So there are those that would, that would argue that the architectural process of city making and the political process cannot be separated and that architecture and public art can be seen as a type of political instrument. In Melbourne, we have seen examples of great procurement processes such as, the, as those used by large uh, universities, those by uh, local political champions that result in great uh, and astonishing urban change. There are also those who would argue that the free market should lead development, that market-led development, and that, that 
market-led developments and great outcomes will result out of intense competition and the ambitions of the private sector. So tonight we'll explore some of the context leading to great architecture and public art. How do we achieve good buildings and good public art outcomes in our city? What are the best processes for enabling these outcomes? So we have assembled an expert panel that has witnessed the development of great public art and architecture and has contributed to this development in the city and who will um, no doubt have different, very different positions on this topic. So uh, our illustrious panel consists of Geoffrey London. Geoffrey is an architect with over 40 years experience in public and private practice. He has had an extensive teaching experience and is the current Winthrop Professor in the School of Architecture, Landscape and the Visual Arts at the University of WA. From 2004 to 2008, he was the foundation government architecture in WA and from 2008 until very recently was Victorian government architect. Uh, we'll have to tap your brain, Geoffrey, um, uh, about that. In my research, I discovered that Geoffrey is also a printmaker and did a Master's of Fine Art, so it makes him eminently, eminently distinguished to uh, comment tonight on both these, um, on both these questions. Uh, Charlotte Day uh, uh, is the current director of MAMA, Monash University Muse Museum of Art. She has previously worked as an independent curator and was associate curator at the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art, ACCA, where she worked on large-scale commissions by local and international artists, in including New 13 at, uh, in ACCA, at ACCA, uh, Sculptural Matter in 2012 at ACCA, the co-curation of the Adelaide Biennial in 2010, the Tarawara Biennial in 2008 and projects for the Venice Biennale in 2007 and 2005. And one of those was, was great, I think. Um, Charlotte has worked uh, across a range of public and private contexts from advising on temporary and permanent urban-sited works to the acquisition of works for public and private collections including Caldor Public Art Projects, the Michael Buxton Collection of Contemporary Australian, Australian Art and public artworks for the Docklands in Melbourne and City of Stonington. And finally, Andrew Buxton. Andrew Buxton is the managing director of MAB Corporation, known to many, many of you, I'm sure. MAB has been at the forefront of the ambition to marry good design to the economic realities of building development. And they've also been a champion of engaging contemporary art in and around the developments, their developments. Andrew began his career in the quarry and asphalt industry. From 1974 to 1988, Andrew was co-managing director of the Associated Quarries and Asphalt Group. Andrew diversified into property development and in 1995 founded MAB Corporation with Michael Buck Buxton, his brother, who was a significant collector of Australian contemporary art, many of you would know, I'm sure, and he has over 20 years' experience in the property industry. So thank you for coming. So I'll ask the Dorothy Dixer. Geoffrey, how do you get good architecture? <laughs> I think the first step is to get a really good architect on board. Mm -hmm and you need to establish the conditions to enable that to happen. Um, there are many processes that really work to preclude that possibility. Uh, so you need to foreground good design as an absolutely essential factor in the selection process. Um, when I was working in the Government Architect's Office, we produced a document called Government as Smart Client. And it talked about all the different processes by which you could procure both architectural services and buildings. Forgive me for using the word procure, but that's where I come from. Um, and It'll it's never take hold. I'm sure. I'm sure. I can understand it why. It's a monster. But um, there are very many 
processes now out there and some of those that are favoured by government um, can be seen to be working against good design. Mm. But the reality is that if you understand how each of these processes work, you can, you can control them to the point where you can still allow good design to emerge. So this is a, a little manual that we've prepared. It's av freely available on our website. And it talks about all the steps you need to take to ensure that uh, you enable the good design to emerge. Once you have the good design, it's not just the process of having it delivered on the pieces of paper or on the computer screen. It's a process of ensuring that it's delivered in that way. And there are many slippages between what's drawn um, and what is finally built. So you've got to be around to monitor that process of delivery so that you don't lose the quality that is promised in the first instance. So it's a, it's a watchful operation and you've got, to know, you've got to know when to step in at the strategic moment mm. to nurture the right kinds of outcomes. Uh, so Andrew, you're well placed to follow that up. Um, so the government architect puts in uh, a strategy and a <coughs> process to, to, to achieve a good outcome. How, does, uh, you, how do you feel about that and what, what is the, the developer's uh, position on that process? Well, let's get rid of the sticky part first, which is money. Yep. Um, you talked about an economic outlet, so that's always going to be a consideration. But you know, putting that aside, you've got to work out you know, why do you want a good architect? Um, and there's cases where it may not be as important as other cases. So in our case, we're really striving to have a good architect um, externally and internally. And unfortunately, they don't necessarily come together. You can get a very smart-looking building or bridge that actually doesn't work. And unfortunately, um, we run into this all the time. Um, so for us, look, we look around, we're trying to work out what we're trying to achieve um, in the outlet, and then we try and match an architect to, to meet that design. You know, we like to meet them, we like to look at their track record. We've got a few young architects that have worked with us who don't have a big track record. and. Um, what they've produced has been fantastic. I think when we first went down to Docklands, we had a competition with RMIT students who built these um, an ice cream I was shop actually involved in that studio, yeah. And um, the fish and chip shop. Mm. So you know, these were kids who had absolutely no experience. And you go down today and look at them, they are just works of art. So sometimes you've just got to back... Uh, what you see, you know, they can produce a drawing, it's, it's fantastic. But it, it's a real balance. I mean, some of the big architectural firms are going to have external um, credibility and then you've got to get this internal. I mean, we've just finished a building um, last December that has so far won at Docklands 10 awards and there's another two or three pending. Um, and the one next door didn't win any awards, but I can't tell you which one made the most money, <laughs> the, mm. the, the former. But so it, it's it's really, Callum, it's a sticky balance at times. So so why why then? Um, so you've made a shift then more recently to a building that has won awards. Clearly, that's important to you, but it's not going to make more money uh, as the as the earlier one. So has something shifted there in the way you? No, no, it? it wasn't a. Um, it wasn't a deliberate move. Yep. It's it just mm -hmm. that we, we 
the last few times we've gone out in competition, so we've gone to three or four architectural firms and paid a retainer to these people, and then they've come back with it. So we're not just going to you or you. Um, we've gone to these people, and they've come up with concepts. And in some ways, they're, they're sort of fighting each other to come up with a good concept, mm. and we've found it to work well. So mm. this last building that we finished, um, McBride, Charles, Ryan, it just looked right. Mm. It looked right, as I said, it looks right externally and internally. Mm. Well, that, that's interesting. It segues to Charlotte, actually, because this, the, the process by which you commission public artworks is a, is a kind of contested one as well. And so there are a number of ways that you can um, in, in enable public art. And, and one is uh, an open tender, which is generally found in, in, in the public sphere, local councils and, and government. It can be by invitation. So typically, one might be invited to submit a proposal uh, amongst a number of uh, artists, which is not dissimilar to architecture. And there'll be a number of stages, um, often two. And the artists will be paid for every, every one of those stages. And that's public. In best case scenario. Best they case get scenario, paid get paid. And that's public and private. Um, and then you can be commissioned directly, which is clearly, you know, in the private sphere, uh, but also institutions engage in, the, in, in, in that. So what, in your experience, you've been experienced in a lot of these processes. What, what is the best process for um, getting innovative, risky um, public art commissions? I don't think there is one process. Yes. Um, but I suppose I started off with the idea that uh, sometimes you have to think what is the public art that someone actually wants because I think people have an idea of public art but they may not have much actual experience of it or even the broader context of artists mm. and the work they do. If you go um, for an open submission process, you're likely to get the usual suspects that will submit work for that because there's probably a group of artists that do that public kind of public artwork mm. um, regularly. So the kind of projects I've done, I've tried to avoid that process and thought more about the specifics of the site, um, both location but also what the aspiration is for that site and then taken it from there. So sometimes that might be um, bringing together a, a group of artists and getting them to propose. Um, as we did at Docklands, mm. the one that we've worked on together, we didn't necessarily start off with a sense that we would go through a very extended process to even get to the selection of artists. But as it turned up, turned out it was probably eight, 12 months. I think, in that initial stage. And in some ways, we were all learning together what the potential of that site and how art could be on that site through that process. Mm. So, I mean, it kind of depends on who the people are, how willing they are to involve themselves in a process mm. and bringing together the right people that can work in a process. So in that instance, the um, participation and support of the developer was absolutely key. Mm but also the architects because they were on board from the start and were very motivated for a good art solution for mm. that public space. But then in, as it turned out, we also needed Places Victoria and the City of Melbourne to come on board um, and to also be interested in this way of working to mm. achieve something. Yeah, I, I will just say that um, Charlotte was a curator on a project uh, that is opening 
uh, on December the 10th down at Docklands. And it's a collaborative project between myself, uh, artist-led project, uh, MCR Architects and Oculus, the landscape architects. And it has been three years in the making and it was has been a very long process of negotiation. I think at some point the, the, the project looked like it might not happen and I think that's inevitable in these processes and I'm sure this is the same in architecture, of course. Um, but there was a sense that um, because it was collaborative, mm. that there were a lot more advocates around the table and, um, and perhaps artists aren't so inclined to sit at those tables uh, consistently. And I think also the artist, and this is always the case when artists are working with architects, landscapers, other businesses. Artists are the kind of, they're a sole trader and they're working with groups that have a lot more people behind them so it's quite hard for them to play together in that group mm. often, I think. So you do need advocates that um, stand up for the project as well as the artists themselves being the advocate. Well, it's, it's interesting, I suppose, how we're just talking about sort of integ integrated outcomes which mm. in yes. some way I mean, for that example, I think it's worked really well, but yeah. I think it's it's probably required a, n a number of stars to align. Absolutely, which yeah. is which which obviously is not not always easy. So, I, I suppose I'm interested then, and and there's another example at Monash happening at the yeah. moment, which is which is also integrated. But I think when when is integration actually not the best solution? It's true because when I first started, um, Monash has is unrolling a program of public art commissions, mainly on the Clayton campus, but some on the Caulfield campus. And so we've developed a master plan for public art that sits with the master plan of the university. But when I first started at Monash, everyone was talking about that we'll do integrated art projects. And I said from the start, you know, we might be able to, but they, we may not on every occasion. Firstly, because of the timeline, but it may not be appropriate to the architects, to the site, to the... Um, the way art could be in that location. So I kind of squashed the <laughs> integration aspect as a given, but we have successfully, well, so far we've worked closely on one where we um, uh, developed a short list of artists and the landscaper selected an artist that they would like to work with. Mm. So they were involved um, in interviewing all those artists and discussing ideas with them. Mm -hmm. And then that artist has worked with the landscaper from the inception of their design for um, the internal space of Caulfield campus. So yeah. I think that's been a good outcome, but yeah. um, wouldn't necessarily work in Yeah, And Diego's right. I mean, there are so many different ways to, to skin the cat. I mean, yeah. integration, yeah. plonk. You know, um, and so on. There's, you can find good and bad examples of all of those things. Yeah, we're about to do another project with Ronnie Van Hout that um, is a sculptural kind of robot-based yeah. sculpture that is being um, submitted between a car park and a Lions building. Science. You know, yeah. mm. That these are pre-existing one new building against an old one, and I think it will actually create an amazing dialogue with those buildings. But it's come after the fact. So, Andrew, what about you? How do you feel about um, the public art thing while we're on that? Do you, you know, MAB have invested a lot of money. There's the percentage for art. Mm. I think it's 1% of any building over $2 million. Is that right? And it's in WA, Jeffrey, or...? Uh, yeah. They use the term percent for art, but it's rarely ever a percent. It's rarely ever yeah. a percent. Yeah. It's normally coming in at about a quarter of a percent. 
Is it? Right. Okay. And so down at Docklands, you've done a lot of public art commissions as part of that percent for art. Yeah, when you talk about public art, I include landscaping in that. Um, so, and for us, or, you know, it's ancillary to the building. It doesn't sort of help you sleep or uh, sit at your desk, etc. So it's what makes, I think, everything enjoyable. You come out and you can see a nice tree or a nice piece of art. And um, that's certainly what, uh, how we look at it. As I said, there's a cost involved in it and you know, it's hard to measure whether you get it back or not. But, you know, we've been uh, down at Docklands, um, you know, really enjoyed the art that we've put in there and looking forward to your art later on. And I, th I think the people that move around there enjoy it more. Um, but from a landscaping point of view, we, back in, I think, 1996, we started our first industrial development in Broadmeadows. Now, look, Broadmeadows was considered not an up upmarket suburb, and um, industrial developments were considered pretty crappy. You'd see the old tyres out the front, a bit of barbed wire. So when we did the estate, first we called it a business park, so lifted it up a bit, and um, we allowed nobody to have anything out there, and then I think we spent a million dollars on landscaping. This is it just was unheard of um, back then and we promised the council or the commissioners as they were then that we would produce something that the people there would love it and you can go there now probably 20 years later there's a lake it's a drainage overlay but it's a lake it's got palm trees little boardwalk out there and the people that live across the road the people that work there they love it mm. so it's this interaction that you can do it and you can probably recover um, what you spent. In this case, we, we, you know, we've done something we wanted to do and we then recovered it later on. So you're recovering it in placemaking terms? Not, there's not a financial No, benefit, no, no. I, I you, think you are, mm. by creating the place, mm. then you might benefit. Out at um, Bandura, again, we had, we had to build a lake, a drainage. So we built this beautiful area that's got walkways through it. We've got a nice big John Kelly sitting out on Plenty Road. And people just love to go there. And you know what happened? The price of everything went up. Mm. So, but we did this first with no promises because we actually just like, as you say, the place. And if you do that mm. and other people like it, then there's a benefit for everybody. Yeah, I mean, you, you often hear, you know, financial arguments tied to good design. And I think there's health benefits or improvements of place where people just want to go more the real estate prices might go up and so on so that's that's a kind of interesting argument about why you would get i guess good design to begin with but if we take maybe a couple of steps back to this question of how do you get as jeffrey introduced the good architect or the good artist to start the process and sometimes you say well maybe that's sometimes it's not even that necessary I'd be interested to hear a bit more about that but um so in, in architecture, in the profession, it's, uh, for example, the question of competitions always comes up. And how do you, how are you going to procure a building? And uh, so, for example, Fed Square was a really good example. That was a competition. It resulted in, you know, arguably a fantastic outcome. So I'd be curious to hear maybe from you, Jeffrey, initially, what do you think about that? And when is it not best to have a competition? 
I, I must admit to fairly mixed feelings about competitions. I think they can be fantastic. Uh, in architecture, they also require, often, when they're an open competition, a huge amount of effort uh, by architectural teams for no remuneration. And I find that difficult. Um, there are strategies that are used uh, up in Sydney, and I think they're a bit ahead of us in this game, where they offer incentives to developers um, to seek good design outcomes through running limited competitions, and they might invite they might be they might invite three practices to submit a design for a particular brief. They will pay them. It'll be an honorarium rather than a fee, so it'll be a modest payment, but it'll. It'll pay for some of their goods and chattels. We are doing that here, Geoffrey. So good to hear. Not, not a Sydney. <laughs> good um, to hear. But hang on, there's, there's another rider to this. What the city of Sydney offers once a developer runs that process is an incentive in terms of higher yield. Now, to enable higher yield, you've got to have some controls in place that say if you don't go down this path, you're not going to get a higher yield. So. It's a very active means of saying, we do value good design. Here's a process that will enable you to get a, a, a better yield outcome. And we, the community, will get a better outcome also because there'll be a better designer on board. Um, the, the city does contribute to the selection process. So they're part of the developer team that will select the, the architect. <coughs> there are some developers up there now who go through that process like you do without any uh, desire for uh, the increased yield. Simply because... Is Matthew Guy listening to this conversation? I've talked to Matthew Guy about this in the past, <laughs> believe me. <laughs> Simply because they understand and accept that good design is going to give them a better uh, outcome in the marketplace. Something that is better designed will provide um, a, a better financial yield. But there are other less quantifiable aspects that uh, we need to talk about when it comes to good design, and that relates to things like identity, yeah. uh, community pride, character, the ability to tell a story around a building, mm. the things that make uh, life worth living in the end, that, that mm. give it a degree of richness to uh, where we actually live. And I think unless you encourage good design, people who are able to design and weave those kinds of that kind of depth into um, what they're doing, we, we live in a more impoverished state. It's, it's kind of defining a um, broaden a set of criteria for assessing design or art, the kind of art you would do the same way, I think, because a number of projects when we've started has been like, I like it or I don't like it, or it, I can see it can happen or it you know, doesn't look that feasible, but sometimes it's, there's a lot of other criteria that might be more interesting and relevant. Mm. And if you only take an economic bottom line, you're not actually going to get that far with them. Mm. I suppose it, when it becomes very interesting, I mean, if you think of institutional buildings and university work and so on, maybe <coughs> where the government's involved uh, very closely, then you can see it working one way. It's interesting that you mentioned Matthew Guy and the number of uh, residential um, developments that have happened lately in the city where perhaps there's been less involvement and a bit of a hands-off attitude for a number of different reasons. Um, so what, you know, what, what's the response there? What do we do there? Um, my, my involvement uh, on that front was largely to do with residential apartment development 
And as some of you in the audience will know, we have attempted to develop uh, a regulatory process that uh, attempts to establish a set of standards for uh, residential development. And again, Sydney has had this in place now for 12, 13 years. Uh, what they call SEP 65, which is the State Environmental Planning Policy number 65, um, <clears throat> where they did actually, after a very large forum was held at the behest of Bob Carr when he was Premier, come up with this set of rules, um, which included a number of quite constraining factors, which we haven't been as bold here to suggest we might introduce, such as... Um, any apartment building over four units in number must be designed by a registered architect. Um, a certain percentage of apartments, and it's quite high, must enjoy cross-ventilation. They must receive a certain number of hours of direct sunlight each day. We certainly day. don't do that cross-ventilation here. No? Yeah. no. Well, you could also argue that there are climatic differences between Sydney and Melbourne, which may not make it as critical, but... Uh, I live in an apartment where I would value cross-ventilation at certain times of the year. Um, <clears throat> so again, Sydney has got in place a process that has, that has come from a view that you can regulate for better design outcomes. And um, when I started in these government architect roles, I didn't hold that view, but I must admit that I've become a bit of a convert on that front. I think it is possible to put in place a set of rules. and. What it mainly does is cut out the worst design. It kind of elevates the bar and makes sure that you, uh, you, you can encourage better design outcomes. It, doesn't in, it should not inhibit the really good designers who are going to do a very good, responsible job anyway. It just occurred to me that perhaps there should be a government artist. <laughs> because yeah, or, uh, you have well, to be a registered <laughs> artist to yeah you have to be a registered artist three year degree and all that um, having taught maybe but um, because I think in public art there are certain genres that are repeated over and over again and we all know them there's the plant the formalist the inscription into the ground there's the you know fetish for engineering there's, you know the, and that they are kind of repeated and uh, if you're in that space you do have ambition for it to be unpredictable and to broke new, break new ground. But, uh, and so I wonder, uh, you know, I'm, I'm joking, but I wonder how is it that we get that? Because, uh, you know, certainly you hear elsewhere that um, there are very radical projects mm. that happen. Um, that Even unpredictability mm. is one of the criteria, you know, that I have in when we're assessing things, you know, is it... Is there a sense of imagination in this project? Is is it unpredictable? How is um, how, is it going to inspire the people that come across it? How can they interact or not with it? So I mean, I think there's a whole way of looking at mm. what. And there's a, there's a danger be. of being prescriptive. Yes. Yeah. Too much yes. prescriptive, and with regulations of saying you know, you've got to have a bit of this and a bit of that. It really defeats the purpose of you, you might allow the government or the local government or somebody to approve it, but you'd hate to have a set of guidelines by which you as an artist come out and sure. meet. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the question is whether public art is a genre unto itself. We've heard that argument um, often, and there are many artists that just occupy that sphere, aren't mm. there? But actually, I'm much more interested in the artist who works in a number of contexts and then will work in the public context 
occasionally, and that is much more like a design process. I mean, there is a brief and there is a thing you have to respond to, and I enjoy all that personally. But um, I mean, the thing that I would say for artists that don't regularly work in that field, and we've come across it, is the kind of documentation and the mm. way you are meant to present what you do so it fits a much more um, architectural design-based model can be very onerous or um, scary for artists and not all, and they're not always mm. well equipped to do that solely. Um, so it would certainly be, I would see it as my responsibility to help an artist through that process. And, you know, we devise like a different contract for using at Monash that's not a standard contract because the standard contract is just inappropriate for an artist. But the institution, um. like a university, is freed from the pro—no, not from the process uh, um, in terms of probity, but in terms of um, in terms of kind of competitive tendering and procurement. Right. I mean, we still have to kind of negotiate on that every time because we're not doing it the standard way. Mm. Um. And it's a bit hard, like the project that you guys worked on for us. It's three years where nothing's ever taken three years for us. Um, and I have to say, it's, it's a bit like a government project. It's cost twice as much <laughs> as it was meant to cost. So um, we're not proud of being um, that far out of uh, the way we do things. But I think the end result will be the right result. Well, I certainly appreciate you hanging in there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was with the aspirations of that project from the start were quite large. And I suppose that was part of the process deciding, yes, are we all, we, you, willing to go through that and then how can we achieve it? Mm. Um, you know, which, I mean, but certainly at stages in the project, you know, especially when we were dealing with Places Victoria and the City of Melbourne, some of the um, sticking points were really things that were quite, um, were much more about rules, you know, how the sense of it should have a historical kind of connection or a be responsive to this site, you know, in a very kind of direct way. I mean, mm. that was something that we came across a bit where, you know, how does this work do that? You know, with we thought it did, but it didn't do it in a way where it had um, bits of sheds that related mm. to the... But it's a very interesting ...history question. of that site, literally, yeah. you know, mm. it kind of... It related to the site in a different way. It's a very, yeah. it's a very interesting question. I was just thinking... Of how you how you actually regulate in a public art context, and it's it's uh, you know uh, com in some ways completely open for interpretation. In in architecture, often it's attached to issues of performance, and you know where they cross ventilate. You have certain you know areas of, of openings and windows and so on. But it occurred to me you know that really um, because obviously there's there's a lot of issues with overregulation, and there are a lot of there's a lot of resistance for very good reasons to overregulation. So what is it then do, that we need to develop as a more sophisticated set of processes that still achieve good outcomes, you know? Um, and um, because in architecture, you could, you could similarly attach overregulation to, I mean, there's an issue of character, for example, that's often brought up in, in suburban developments. And what's a neighborhood character? And that, that's a very interesting, very broad, difficult, mm. you know, question to define. So it's, it is about establishing, is it about establishing a more sophisticated set of processes? As soon as you do that, on the other hand, you know, the uh, bureaucracy might 
start to get in the way. So it's it's a sort of balance. I don't know, Jeffrey, what? One process that we did develop, uh, it's been running now for a couple of years, is what we what's been called the Victorian Design Review Panel. And I'm talking only architecture. I'm not presumed to talk about. I think there should be an Public art, art, art review yeah, panel. Well, maybe there could be. <laughs> well, what it is is a, it's a peer review group that looks at designs as they develop and mm. we try and encourage people to bring designs in at the earliest possible stage. Then the ideas are still fluid. You can still mm. talk about them. People haven't locked into positions over them. And uh, we have a panel of 30 people who've been appointed through a fairly rigorous process of screening and interviewing and having them do dummy review runs and we use um, four or five of each uh, of from that panel of 30 for each design review uh, panel that we establish uh, and it's normally chaired was chaired by me or the associate government architect and the um, the level of unanimity of view that emerges in terms of strengths and weaknesses is astonishing uh, and it's, uh, to my mind, um, a very enriching process because you bring that set of external views to a piece of work that's been developed in isolation from them. Um, you're briefed up to a point, mm. but you're responding essentially to the work as it's presented to you on the day. Um, and, and you're there to help improve it, not to, not to shoot it down in flames. No, I'm unaware of this. For what because we don't deal with it. This. It was established in the first instance for government projects. Government projects. Um, but it's, it's expanded beyond that, and we've now opened it up to local authorities. And local authorities refer work to the design review panel. Um, and we've, we've looked at work all the way from uh, district plans, large master plans, to individual buildings, small and large. I think it's an excellent idea. It would be an excellent idea for public art projects, actually. I think it adds huge value to the process. Well, that's one thing you need when you're op working on a project and if you're on your own, um, the, you know, a sounding board or uh, a, a conversation through the development where sometimes you might feel a bit lost. It's not like being in the studio and doing your work individually. Yeah. It's much more engaged with a broader collaborative um, process and you often don't get that in these meetings. It can also unlock impasses that occur yep. between, say, the architect and the client. They haven't quite gelled on a particular issue. But if, if a client, whether it's a government agency or a private sector client, can hear a panel say, that's a really strong approach, mm. we do encourage you to take that one further, yep. that can give confidence to the client about the way the project's heading. I do remember a particular project I had uh, that I was chosen for up in Sydney, uh, a hospital that I won't name, that uh, was run by um, a Catholic church, uh, or part of it was owned by the Catholic church. And I did go to a meeting, I presented thousands of images through this iterative process, and I did go to the meeting and I felt like the Vatican were in the <coughs> room and there was some force beyond you know, what was being said at the table that was kind of operating that I couldn't see. But I mean, I needed a conversation with God, obviously. But I mean, but you know, through it was very frustrating that process, you yeah. know, because I couldn't step outside of it. Mm. But was yeah. that where the and for us that yeah. process is? I hear what Jeffrey's saying. That's a government panel reviewing a government job. But for us, uh, where we're reviewed by private se sectors, reviewed by the public sector, and we talk about having good, innovative 
architects, a lot of the time the people reviewing this aren't good innovative architects. So it's, and they are afraid to um, approve anything. So, you know, this might be this weird, one of your jobs, this weird thing. <laughs> and unfortunately, you know, it's better say no than say anything that's at all. And that's right, the most yeah. frustrating thing that we have. I say, oh, I'm a bit worried about that curve um, because they're not qualified. And I don't know how you overcome that. Ask for them to direct it to the Victorian Design Review Panel. <laughs> That's not another panel I want to deal with. <laughs> I think, um, I think you'd find them very benign and helpful. I think on the Monument Park project, the most hostility we got through thousands of meetings was from someone at, at City of Melbourne who was there to sort of test the ethical nature of the project, I think, mm. and uh, completely blocked it. And so he had obviously the best intentions in mind, but they weren't right for what we were trying to do. Mm. Um, so, you know, the, the, that kind of good intention can actually, I, th I think I agree with Andrew, can really block yeah. uh, the process sometimes. I think it's um, tough when it falls to an individual yeah. it is to make that judgment. Yes. When you've got yeah. a panel of peers who are equally strong in their views, I think it, it tempers mm. those kinds of outcomes. I, I think you can do that on big projects, but you get to local government, modest-sized projects, might be a house, might be three apartments... Yeah. It's, mm. it's not so, not because so, the, the, the reviewers aren't that wide. When we deal with, I go to meetings and <coughs> there might be the chief and then there's five or six other people. And he said, we're going to ask everyone. I said, I'm leaving the room because if I ask, you've got to say I want a round window and a square window. Otherwise, you feel a bit of a dickhead if you don't say anything. <laughs> and they're better off saying nothing because then we have this design, we want a round and a square window. It is, a, it is very frustrating. I mean, I think with the way we worked on the Docklands one was really keeping a certain concept, a core of the concept strong mm. and then being responsive to other things around that because it does, the process requires give and take mm. too, I think. But mm. um, I think that's, that was an unusual, it's an unusual project in that regard because you keep the core strong and it can. I think that's the nature of most public art projects and I would imagine, well it's probably not the same with architecture, but is there a core that you keep strong and you can lose lots of other stuff? I don't know. But but certainly with public art, you know, you can if the gesture is strong mm. and you, you, you understand to hang on to that uh, and you can lose some other things. So it is, it is negotiation. Whereas often, I mean I think what you're saying, Andrew, too, is I think it's often people's best intentions that they think we need to have these certain criteria to follow, you know, and it has local relevance or relating to the history of the site and stuff. These are principles that are good and so we should follow them. But often maybe it's because they don't have an expanded sense of what, um, what the possibilities could be, you know, so they go back to what they know. That's yeah. kind of what you're saying. I mean, the thing that's interesting with public art is then how do you assess it, which we haven't got to the point with this project, but once it's done, how do you assess if it is successful or not? Mm. You know, when it's, it's not like you fear. can resell the apartment and, mm -hmm. I mean, if the prices of the apartments go down, that's not going to be good. But, you know, how will we actually be able to judge the success? Um, how many people... You need an awards process <laughs> as well. <laughs> how much graffiti <laughs> it gets or not? Yeah. 
Well, we've got How another playful one. Is we've it? got the the Adrian Morix. Uh, it's a fiberglass uh, called Silence, and you just kids, adults, young people getting married, they go down there and have photographs. And I think you can see any art around Melbourne. If it's any good, people will actually go next to it. Yeah, how it's occupied. Stand under it and rub it. Well, that brings me to this, actually, this pavilion. So, um, and with the question of advocacy, good design or projects like this, that, you know, this is a a pavilion based on, you know, global model. Um, It's it's sort of uh, an object in a way, isn't it? This, these types of pavilions, it's, it's uh, you know, almost like an art object as well as being a piece of architecture, so it's sort of between the two. By dint of it being populated by cultural activity, it's in a cultural precinct, etc. Um, does, how does something like this perform? And it might be the same way that public art or a good building does. How, how does it perform as an act of advocacy? Do you think that's important that there are projects like this to, to um, broadcast good design? Well, I mean, just look at it here. It's it's here. It's a space that you can come and do what you're doing. And there's there's not a heap of these where you could sit and chat in such a wonderful environment. There's just not that many places. I think it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, I mean, just a, just a maybe a quick add-on to it. I agree, completely agree. I think it's been fantastic. But I think one of the most amazing things about this has been also to do with the software and the cultural programming yeah. of events uh, events that are on a rotating basis and are about creating a certain kind of atmosphere, a certain kind of uh, culture around events. Um, so it's very much to do with the, with the object as well as the attached um, software that surrounds it mm. in that sense. Um, mm. I mean, a lot of the discussion around public art and public space is how to program it. You know, I mean, when we were talking with the City of Melbourne, they kept talking, well, how are you going to program that space? Mm. So it is, I think there's an increasing demand for things that are public, free, not necessarily commercial, and that the, there's a preciousness about public space, public arena, that's something, you know, mm. we need and we want to share. Mm. I, th- I think the idea of the pavilion... Uh, can often focus around the temporary nature of it and you can go right back to the history of uh, when World Exposition started with 1851 and the the temporary pavilion of the Crystal Palace uh, built out of repetitive parts in record time Uh, and the intent was when those pavilions developed through the late part of the 19th century to show the latest and the greatest as a means of bringing ideas to a broader population. So if that's still the intent of a pavilion in our electronic age, um, that's right. fantastic to keep doing it. Yes, <laughs> and, and you mentioned the word temporary there, which is something we haven't got on in terms of types of public art. You know, the difference between permanent and temporary, I think it's so significant. There's certainly a lot more freedom in temporary public works than there is in permanent, in a certain way you can you know, exercise the poetic and the ephemeral um, like you can't in permanent works. And I just wonder whether we should open the floor up to questions, Diego. Um, Does anyone have questions um, maybe on that topic or anything else? Comments. Comments. No, not comments. We want questions. Don't we want comments? Questions. Questions. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Wait, we want questions. 
Hello. Okay, uh, just a little question about the relationship between the artist and the architect. Where ideally should the architecture stop and the art start? And within the typical building process, where ideally should the artist be placed? I don't think there's any single answer to those questions. I think it'll depend on the project to a large extent. I've seen successful examples of collaboration that has occurred from day one, um, where the artist has had a profound effect on the forming of the building. And I've seen other instances where the artist has been invited later to contribute to what the building is. Uh, and that's also been successful. So I think it's a, I think it's a case of uh, who, who the players are, uh, what the intent is in terms of the artwork, uh, and what the nature of the building is. All, all of those factors come into play. Yeah, we've, we've had a couple of buildings down at Docklands where the artists have actually worked with the architect in the building itself. All of our car parks down there are built above ground because it's Coot Island silt and you just can't penetrate it. And uh, one of them, the Nolan building, the, uh, the artist Alexander Knox, um, he recreated his vision of what Nolan was doing. So he's built around the car park, made it still uh, penetrable for air, and he's done this fantastic gold work that just goes around it. So if the architect and the artist work together, it's good, but there is no limit. Architecture's pretty busy these days. <laughs> I've a couple of projects I've worked on the architects say, so, you know, we really want art in the mix. And then when you look at the plans, like, there's no walls that are straight. <laughs> and um, it's actually unclear where there might be visual or um, psychological space for art in the mix. Um, so it really depends how much, you know, the architecture might be open to art you know I don't think it's um, there's always that much room for it one project at Monash when I went to meet the architects they said they showed me the um, fire escape staircase and they're going I would think we could have an art project in here I'm like no, no we're not going to do that <laughs> um, but then there's another instance where the constraints were actually quite remarked but then the artist came up with a good um, solution to how she might work with the space and the kind of material that was available. So, I mean, constraints can be good too. Okay, so maybe just a quick follow-up question as well. So if, if that's the case, how's our 1% for art working? Um, you know, is it successful? If not, how could it be improved? Well, we'd well, like the 1% <laughs> to start if we could, with. If we could get it. We're advocating for that. Yeah. I think actually it's a good question because, and I'm not sure, Andrew, perhaps you could illuminate about how how one implements that 1% and whether there are different ways to um, bring the money, pull the money together for bigger projects. And I, I suspect that that's kind of happened at various times. So uh, perhaps it depends on the project and how ambitious the project uh, is. And if you can tip more money into it, then, then perhaps those projects do start to tip into the architectural realm a bit more, um, if that makes sense. So you'd be interested to know how the um, Docklands uh, situation works. So it's 
0.8% of the construction costs goes towards art and 0.2% goes to the government body to spend on art. So they accumulate that from four or five buildings. Um, the project that Callum's working on was a contribution from uh, a number of buildings plus our own contribution over and above that. So you, you don't have to spend it in the area. Uh, one of the buildings, we embedded it in the, um, in the building itself. We had this gigantic steel beam coming out of a, a, a building done by... Um, oh, I can't tell you now. I'll tell you in a minute. Um, but the money's Carl there. Fender. Mm? Fender. Oh, Carl, yeah, yeah. Carl Fender with, uh, with, a, with an artist. Um, so that money is there and hopefully it's used wisely. But it could be in the building, externally or out in a public area as well? I mean, I think part of the regulation with Places Victoria was not wanting developers to use the art allowance for yeah. landscaping, other work that they meant to be doing. And that was actually um, a problem for us at the start because on Callum's project because we are like, well, we want the landscaping to be integrated and we don't want art without landscape with this project. So. Mm. But they, their kind of rules and guidelines were to protect the art budget in a way, but they weren't actually necessary. But I think for this, this model, Docklands, is the only place that this model that I know of exists mm. um, in Melbourne. Everywhere else, it's just do what you have to do. Yeah, I mean, I suppose uh, going back to the question about where architecture stops and art. Um, begins and vice versa. There is a, there is a terrain I think, and I mentioned at the beginning where, and I recently wrote something with Nigel Bertram for AA. We're talking about this idea of this kind of knot. It's not either, uh, either one or the other, but it's that two are sort of coexisting. And I think there is a, there is a growing tendency, um, certainly as a lot of our art practices over the last ten to fifteen years, where where these things have kind of merged, and the artists are happily doing architects architecture, working with architects, or and and vice versa. Do you see that there's a a possibility where that kind of practice um, or those distinctions um, merge more comfortably? Because sometimes they're they're awkward, aren't they? Um, well, some architects would start banging the table and say, "Well, architecture is art." Yeah. Yeah. You know, what are you talking about? An artist's about? architecture. Well, it doesn't work, right, when you say that. It doesn't really work. <laughs> Jeffrey? <laughs> I mean, that was, yeah, even in the briefing stage to, I mean, to have an open up enough for an art possibility to come into it is yeah. often hard because the architect, fair enough, that like they've really had to push to be able to achieve the building and its location um, anyway. So they've created a certain boundaries that they want, you know, so then art sometimes can be something that's disruptive yeah. to that. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that's, all, that's, a, that's a philosophical conversation that mm. maybe can lead in many different directions, but when you're talking about procurement, when you're talking about percentages that go to certain authors, mm. like they become very um, particular mechanisms to get very particular outcomes. As an architect, I started to do a little bit of public art when I first moved to Australia in Perth many years ago, uh -huh. and realized that we you get 40% yeah, yeah. fees. Oh my God, I've been in the wrong profession all these years. Oh, you don't. That's rubbish. I'm joking. <laughs> so, <laughs> but it is, you know, so, so obviously procurements matter, and what investments go in which directions, and what governments are investing in, and in which way make a really big difference. Mm. 
I, I think there are building types for which that kind of collaboration yeah. could work brilliantly. Well, the pavilion is one of them. Yeah. Of course, yeah. And, and others where I think it could be a real problem. Yeah. yeah. Do we have other questions? One last question in my closet. Yeah. yeah. Not sure. one more question. Sure. <laughs> Surely one. Okay, that's a bit uncomfortable. Um. <laughs> well, that's an hour exactly. That's an hour. So, so yeah. Good wrap up. It's a temperature thing, Callum. Yeah. Oh, and I just wanted to say thank you very much to our panel members. I think it's a, a conversation that's really important to continue. Um, mm. And um, I think it's brought up some really interesting, difficult kind of topics that could be, <laughs> that should be followed up. Yeah, I agree. Thank you very much so to the panelists. Thank you very thank much. You. Thank and you. thank you for coming. Thank you. Yeah.